Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Siegel, the host of the channel, and I'm delighted today to be talking to Louis Siegelbaum, who is the author of a new book called Stuck on Communism, Memoir of a Russian Historian. Welcome, Louis, to our podcast today. Thank you very much, Steve. So I'll just begin with a little introduction of Professor Siegelbaum. He is the Jack and Margaret Sweet Professor Emeritus of History at Michigan State University, and he was educated at Columbia and Oxford, uh, and spent time teaching at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, uh, after which he began his um, long and decorated teaching career at Michigan State University. Lewis's research interests have included Russian and Soviet labor history, consumption and material culture, particularly in the late Soviet period, and internal migration within late Imperial Russia and the Soviet Union. He's the author of many books, um, including books on the effort to mobilize industry in Tsarist Russia during World War I, on the Stakhanovite movement, on the Soviet state and society in the 1920s. Uh, And one of my very um, favorites, my personal favorite, I think, is the award-winning Cars for Comrades, The Life of the Soviet Automobile, published in 2008. Lewis has also co-authored with Jim von Geldern the award-winning website um, used by tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of us um, teachers in the field. It's called 17 Moments in Soviet History, an online source book used um, quite extensively. Uh, most recently, and, and this is a book I actually reviewed uh, for the AHR, uh, Lewis, together with Leslie Page Mock, wrote, Broad is my native land, repertoires and regimes of migration in Russia's 20th century, published in 2014, and a new book edited with Krista Goff, a wonderful collection called Empire and Belonging in the Eurasian Borderlands. Today, Lewis and I will be talking about his memoir, Stuck on Communism, Memoir of a Russian Historian, published by Northern University Press, Northern Illinois University Press, an imprint of Cornell University Press in 2019. So uh, let me just start with the the first question um, to Lewis. And what is it that, that made you write a memoir. There are a lot of memoirs out there, Catherine Verdery, Sheila Fitzpatrick. What is it that made you write this book? Uh, As I indicate uh, in the forward of the book, uh, I really kind of fell back into it. Uh, It was not, it never had been my intention to write my memoir. But uh, several years ago, uh, a good dear old friend suggested to me that I put together a collection of articles that I had published here and there over the decades uh, that had to do with labor history. Uh, She felt that it was time for us to revisit that um, 
body of literature and that approach to history. So I started doing that. Um, and that, and then it's some, at some point became apparent to me, uh, that, um, in order to do that, I had to write something in the way of an introduction to explain why and how I got into, uh, labor history. So that took me back to, uh, the years after I had, uh, uh written, uh, my dissertation and, uh, turned it into my first book. Uh, but that didn't seem to be sufficient, so I started going back even further into my uh, upbringing, my family's past, and uh, before I knew it, uh, I was sort of sketching out uh, the 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 core of, of what what would become the memoir. And then there's the second impulse, I think, that somewhere along the line, as I was reaching for documentation of all of this, I uh, discovered that I had saved an enormous amount of material that consisted of letters and emails and uh, drafts of uh, things that I had published. And, uh, you know, much to my surprise, I, I, I didn't realize I was such a pack rat, but uh, uh, much of this I discovered in connection with uh, the downsizing of my office. I was moving uh, out of the office I had uh, occupied uh, before retirement. And um, so I had to sort of pack up things and decide what to throw out and what to keep. And in, in all of that, it turned out that I had had an enormous archive uh, that uh, I could draw upon. So I have to ask from the beginning, you have a, a wonderful chapter with which you begin a lot of your family history and describe being born red-blooded um, an American in 1949. The chapter on tennis and communism is, I think, an introduction into your formative years and also, in many ways, the choices that um, you began making in your childhood about uh, class identification, politics. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, tennis and communism uh, is one of several chapters that um, consists of, in, at least as far as the title is concerned, two, if not opposites, then certainly different um different things, different activities or different uh, concepts or whatever. And that seemed to be appropriate uh, to the ambivalence and the difficulties I've had throughout my life, really, in deciding who I am and what it is that moves me. Uh, tennis being, of course, uh, historically a rather elite sport, um, Drawing, drawing mostly on uh, uh, middle and upper class uh, people um, and, and environments. Uh, and of course, communism, uh, well, <laughs> not being of that sort. Um, so I, um, I, I chose uh, tennis and communism as a way of describing uh, these sort of different pulls on me and on my attention and my time and 
my endeavors to uh, um, to really figure out um, where I belonged. Would you describe yourself from the early age, let's say through the 50s and maybe the early 60s before the era of civil rights and student radicals, would you describe yourself as, as a kind of communist or uh, what, what is it if you had to attach some kind of label to yourself? I know we're all in the business of deconstructing labels, but what, how would you describe yourself? Communism is something that was in the household. Um, my father, having been uh, a member of the CPUSA um, during his uh, teaching career uh, in New York City, uh, he joined the Communist Party in 1939 uh, when he was a young uh, teacher in the New York City public school system. Uh, 19, for, for, for someone to join the Communist Party in 1939, uh, particularly in the United States, I guess, was uh, a little uh, awkward <laughs> or you know, requires uh, some explanation, given that it was the year in which the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany signed their non-aggression pact, something which drove uh, several thousand American communists out of the party in disgust and horror. Uh, after all, the communists throughout the world had been uh, railing against uh, the dangers of fascism, Nazism. Uh, and this was just too much for, for many people. As far as my father was concerned, uh, the overriding issue had to do with um, the things that confronted him every day in the classroom and uh, in the school system, and that communists in New York were in the forefront of the kinds of policies, the kinds of uh, positions that um, most appealed to my father uh, that had to do with support for uh, not only teachers, but, but st uh, students, uh, and particularly um, what we would call today minority students. Uh, and, uh, so he, uh, he joined the party and remained in the party, uh, although became, uh, something of a lapsed member, um, after being ousted, uh, along with many of his comrades during the McCarthy era, uh, which of course happened when I was a very young, uh, boy, uh, and uh, I, I was only in the dimmest sort of way aware of, uh, of the impact of, of that. But as I grew up, um, uh, communism um, was something with which I identified my father, uh, something we talked about in the privacy of our home, um, but rarely outside. Um, and uh, so in, in the late 50s and into the 60s, uh, as, as I became a teenager, uh, I became aware that it was something one didn't uh, share with very many people and, 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 and talk about in the kinds of ways that we did uh, in, in the family. Yeah, and I'm particularly interested in the baby boom generation narratives. We, we have a lot written on this in Russian history and Soviet history and collections by historians like Don Raleigh. 
Um, to that, I would also add the importance of first and, and second generation immigrant narratives and, and especially um, immigrant Jewish narratives in, in New York and the Bronx where you grew up. You describe your father a lot in the book, and I'm, I'm really intrigued by the tension of this kind of family romance, your mother, your father. If we shift into the 1960s, then you, you talk in some ways, I think, um, in a laudatory way about your education and um, getting into Columbia. Can you perhaps um, tell us a little bit more about this intersection of, of family politics and, and then your own politics into the 60s when you begin discovering SDS and, and civil rights and so on? Sure. Uh, I went to Columbia uh, entering uh, as a freshman in 1966, uh, partly because uh, I didn't get into the place I applied for uh, initially, uh, partly through uh, uh, the advice or suggestion of a, of a cousin. Um, and um, uh, I um, really, like so many entering freshmen, had only the dimmest awareness of what it might entail. Uh, I found myself overwhelmed with the brilliance of so many of my fellow classmates uh, coming in many cases from backgrounds not unlike mine, uh, New York, suburban, Jewish kids, um, or I should say uh, young men, since Columbia at that time was uh, sexually segregated, although um, Barnard College, the women's college, was uh, nearby on the other side of Broadway. Uh, and um, it certainly, although geographically not all that far from where I uh, went to high school, where I, where I uh, grew up, uh, was uh, a vastly different kind of environment, um, both in terms of the expectations of, you know, in the daily uh, routines uh, of students, but um, uh, in, in in all kinds of uh, in all kinds of ways. Yeah, uh, I'll I'll read a passage about 1968 because that's kind of where I'm going with these these questions to think about Columbia and and Berkeley and labor historians in general in, in our field, people like Reggie Selnick um, and, and Misha Levine. Um, so on your experiences in Columbia, you write uh, on in Columbia 1968, you write, my reflections on Columbia 1968 stem from both active memory periodically revived and my commitment as a professional historian to reconstruct and analyze the past. I would like to pause here for a moment to consider the larger global context. We student protesters knew back then that we belonged to a worldwide movement against imperialism, militarism, and bureaucratic authoritarianism. We felt sol solidarity not only with Vietnamese peasants fighting against American aggressors, but also the Black Panthers, some of whose rhetoric we adapted. 
young people in Prague seeking socialism with a human face. The German SDSers, who formed the leading element in the extra-parliamentary opposition to the Grand Coalition, then ruling West Germany, student and worker protesters in France, and even in some cases, the cultural revolutionaries in China waving their little red books. All of us, in one way or another, were engaged in actions we thought revolutionary, and despite differences of ideology and emphasis, considered ourselves part of the same revolution that soon would succeed, unquote. So here, I'm really interested, Lewis, because you you have the voice of a student living in 68 moving forward, and then the reflective voice of, of the professional historian. Can you explain that a little bit? Uh, well, this is my attempt as an historian to uh, articulate what uh, I recall of the uh, inchoate in <laughs> feelings that I had as uh, as a student uh, uh, at the moment, uh, something I didn't put in the book. Uh, I recall uh, um, at one of the many rallies that took place during those months, uh, a, uh, a, a young guy getting up, uh, taking the microphone and in a very heavy French accent, so this must have been in May 68, saying uh, something to the effect that uh, if, uh, if we French uh, people can uh, overthrow uh, uh, Monsieur de Gaulle, General de Gaulle, uh, certainly you can uh, overthrow Grayson Kirk. That's the <laughs> name of the president of Columbia University. Uh, so, uh, you know, those kinds of... Uh, connections, if you will, uh, certainly expanded our sense of, you know, who we were and what was going on. And, uh, and, and, and also, uh, I might add the potentials that, uh, existed for, um, you know, for, for, ex- for expanding, uh, the kinds of, uh, uh, successes that we might, we might achieve. You mentioned some of your mentors in the book, and I think after this moment, they become very prominent. Could you tell us who who your biggest mentors were in becoming a professional historian, both, let's say, a revolutionary and a, a scholar, as you describe that? Uh, well, at Columbia, the, uh, certainly um, Stephen Cohen, Stephen F. Cohen, uh, was uh, more of a mentor th- than anybody else. So Steve Cohen at the time uh, was uh, was uh, a graduate student uh, or had just, I can't now recall whether he had just finished his degree, but in any case was not a, a regular faculty member at Columbia. He was, he was what we would call today an adjunct. Uh, and uh, this was before he was hired by, by Princeton. Uh, and uh, so he taught one of the um, sequential courses uh, that were uh, uh, required courses, contemporary civilizations. I think it was 1203 and 1204 or something like that, which was a, effectively a year long immersion in um, uh, the sort of so- sociological and so- social scientific 
in a broader sense, uh, literature of the 19th and 20th centuries uh, up to the 60s, uh, going back to, uh, well, Marx uh, very heavily, and then uh, up through uh, more recent, uh, recently published uh, books by sociologists like Ralph Darendorf and Class and Class Conflict in Contemporary Society, I think it was called. Um, and Cohen, um, just uh, both in terms of the uh, inquiries he was making into this literature and how to sort of uh, engage us uh, with it, as well as his very persona, um, seemed to be something of what we would subsequently consider uh, a role model. Uh, in my last year at Columbia, um, to help clarify why uh, history would be the discipline I would pursue at the graduate level, because as an undergraduate, I was a political science major um, for reasons <laughs> that don't need <laughs> to be mentioned at the moment. <laughs> um, I had a course with a, a, a French Marxist uh, by the name of Lucien Goldman who uh, was to, mm. to die within the year of, uh, of uh, the course I took with him. Uh, but Goldman helped me to appreciate how um, it was possible to combine my interest in revolutions and, uh, and history uh, with uh, a Marxist approach to, uh, to making sense of those. Uh, so... Um, uh, now, when I when I went to Oxford uh, in 1970, um, it wasn't until I was doing research on my dissertation uh, in Paris, uh, the first sort of research trip I made, uh, that I encountered someone else who would play at least as large a role in shaping the kind of historian that I became. And that was uh, Misha Levin, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, Misha was at Birmingham. Uh, I encountered him in Paris because he had an apartment in Paris, um, having uh, been partly educated in France. And um, uh, Misha was uh, like no one I had ever encountered before in many respects although his Eastern European Jewish origins um, were not entirely unfamiliar to me. Uh, and uh, Misha's uh, approach to Soviet history, which uh, generally are characterized as a social historical approach, uh, as opposed to the then still dominant sort of political history, or political science approach, for that matter, um, uh, really was incredibly liberating and refreshing. So I would say those are the two uh, two main influences on me in terms of uh, uh, professors. And you talk in the book about the Journal of Social History. I think this is also a very formative moment for the generation of, of labor historians and, and social historians, maybe even political biographers like Cohen. Um, was there a, a particular set of academic 
literature as you were moving through these years from Columbia to Oxford and eventually to Melbourne in Australia that that you felt most drawn to? Uh, a set of literatures, yes. Well, uh, both academic and non-academic, because I can remember that this is the period when um, reading uh, New Left Review uh, was uh, something that uh, I uh, did on a regular basis. Uh, I don't think there's any stronger influence, though, than the works of E.P. Thompson, uh, who remains something of an intellectual lodestar uh, long after his death. Uh, um, uh, Thompson demonstrated to me uh, a sensitivity to the uh, uh, attitudes and uh, aspirations of working people. Um, that I don't think has been surpassed. Uh, and even though uh, Thompson wrote almost exclusively about uh, the English working class, um, there were many ways in which uh, I and others of my orientation and generation could adapt uh, his insights to uh, the study of uh, Russian and Soviet uh, workers. And um, this became increasingly conscious to me. I mean, at first, I probably took up Thompson just because others I knew were reading uh, Making of the English Working Class and other works by him. Um, but eventually, I saw these connections. I saw these possibilities. Um, and um, so I'd say those are, those are the, the big influences. Um, there also was, um, as I refer in the book, to the um, uh, Raphael Samuels Enterprise um, the History Workshop uh, journal that um, Samuel edited. Um, and the people who associated themselves with these, uh, you know, were people whom I felt were kind of my kind of people. And, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a process that I think we... We don't, that happens to us only gradually, where we we realize that um, you know we feel most comfortable, most stimulated, uh, and most uh, appreciated by by people. Yeah, and and I think this is a good moment to focus on your turn into Soviet history because I think younger people, including myself, often forget that. The, the discipline of Soviet history really didn't exist. And you point this out in the work of, of Sheila Fitzpatrick and Katerina Clark and Bob Davies and, and Misha Levin and others. So my, my next question is both academic and let's say personal, because there are of course a lot of intellectuals who describe a, a shift rightward politically after 1968 maybe even 1956, the larger God that failed narrative. And I'm thinking about intellectuals like Ramon Aron or, or Tony Judd. So there's a real tension, I think, that still persists between the liberals and the radicals after 1968. What role do you think Soviet history had, especially the work that you did through the 70s and, and into Australia? With with the sort of turn 
through labor and social history and then cultural history, working on the Soviet part of it. Do do you think that your, let's say, personal politics were were drawn from outside or was it something that, that came earlier or... How would you explain your turn into the into the Soviet period? Uh, well, you're you're absolutely right that uh, there was effectively no Soviet history uh, done as such uh, in academic uh, history departments. Uh, um, it tended to be uh, political science light, I would say, uh, in some cases. That is to say, when right political scientists wrote about the earlier decades of, uh, of the Soviet period. Um, and Sheila was, uh, as she acknowledges, something of an, uh, an exception, or she was really unique in being able to uh, access Soviet archives, which, you know, was kind of a, a defining, uh, uh, thing for uh, for being an historian, right? You work in archives, uh, and uh, um, Sheila um, was able to do that for various uh, in various for various reasons that that she articulates in her memoir. Um, the rest of us were knocking at the door, um, and inspired by by her example. Uh, but it took several years thereafter for anyone to, um, to to gain access to to archives. I think I have a line in the book where I quote uh, Alex Rabinowitz, uh, who who wrote about 1917 in the immediate months uh, after the revolution, um, saying he didn't even try to gain access because he knew that it would be impossible. Right, and, and that that, right. that that's a it was a very common experience. Um, so uh, it it it, um, it it only by the sort of late nineteen eighties became possible to do archival research with the with the with the sole exception of the one uh, regional archive that was available to Western researchers, which was the Smolensk Party Archive. Uh, that had been captured by the Nazi invaders and then uh, uh, turned over to the United States in the in the wake of the defeat of Nazi Germany uh, and it was available uh, in Washington, D.C. and then eventually uh, via, um, uh, well, once we get into electronic media. Uh, but um, uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, Soviet history, as it emerged in the 1970s and in, into the 80s, uh, was distinct by um, virtue of its association with the dominant strain in social history, which was history from below. Uh, so uh, uh, at least this was the strain that I uh, associated myself with uh, the study of Soviet of the Soviet working class, uh, what being a Soviet worker uh, involved, um, how much uh, was, that was imputed to Soviet workers by uh, and the party and 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 and, and propaganda and 
and the sort of you know official version of Soviet history uh, uh, had any uh, validity at all. Um, so those are the kinds of questions uh, that I think uh, many of us uh, in the in the 70s and 80s uh, were interested in. Yeah, and and you mentioned um, wanting to put workers and shop floor politics in the middle at center stage. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting to me because it comes at that very moment of deindustrialization. What, yes. what you later speak of, um, especially after your return from uh, Australia and then you begin teaching in, in Michigan. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it's around eight, 1983, right? That's, a, that's right. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious because um, there is almost a romance of the working class, and I think that's hard to deny. But there's there's also a, a, I think from a generation of labor and social historians a very um, urgent and and maybe um, authentic attempt to get inside the world and inside the heads of Soviet workers. Um, Again, at that very moment when when industries are are, are starting to disappear, so I, I guess my my question for you would be into the era of, of Reaganomics and Thatcherism, and then your mm-hmm. um, your your turn to Michigan. How is it that that you see the intersection of or interplay of external events with the academic world of Soviet scholarship and, and Sovietology through through the let's say, early to mid-80s and then going up to 1989. Right. This is a whole cluster of issues that uh, I've pondered for a long time, and I'm not sure I have a clear answer, uh, but it, it, it certainly strikes me as something of a, a, a contradiction, and a, an unfortunate contradiction, that, that just as we were discovering and uh, helping to raise the profile of Soviet workers uh, and 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 workers, Soviet workers, almost uh, in every case meant factory workers, uh, workers in in large scale industry. Uh, you know, by our own definition or our own interests, um, the, the, the those kinds of industries uh, were uh, fast disappearing from uh, from Western capitalist societies. Now, I'll say that um, in the Soviet Union, until it uh, it ended, uh, those industries continued to function uh, more or less on the same scale, albeit, you know, uh, no longer at the cutting edge uh, of, of the economy. I mean, one of the explanations for the Soviet Union's economic difficulties, which uh, you know, had a lot to do with the, the collapse of the of the, of the Soviet Union uh, is that it didn't keep up. It didn't, uh, you know, whereas Western societies were uh, well into uh, the information revolution and computers and you know other innovations uh, of those decades, the Soviet Union, uh, with the exception the exception of the space race uh, of space technology. Um, uh, very much lag behind, so there you know there was something of a of a kind of time lag in which we could still operate uh, 
but it's striking that the you know the writing we could not see the writing on the wall very very clearly. We were immersed in the stuff of the 1920s and 30s. Uh, after all, that is almost entirely where the focus was uh, of Soviet labor history. Uh, and I might add here, uh, as I did in a piece I, I wrote uh, 10, 15 years ago called The, the Late Romance of the Soviet Worker, uh, that it was almost entirely male workers. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we, yes. we, we spent, most of us at least, spent almost uh, no uh, effort to try to uh, integrate gender uh, into our analyses. There are prominent uh, exceptions to that, Diane Conker being very much uh, prominent among them. Yeah, I'll, I'll read a passage, I, I think, which um, encapsulates this, this idea of trying to expand the labor history enterprise. You write in your fifth chapter, which is, I think, a wonderful chapter about um, the evolution from labor into social history and then the cultural turn, people like Natalie Zimon Davis, you say, my yearning to tell a different kind of story about the Soviet Union's formative decades, one in which working people occupied the center of the drama, remained undimmed by the collapse of the Soviet Union itself. Soviet elites may have decided they had been stuck with communism long enough, but I was still stuck on it. In this respect, I resembled those well-meaning but deluded sponsors of craft-producing peasants who wish to keep capitalist development at bay. They, at the dawn of that process cut short by the October Revolution, I, at its second dawn, I tried to save the Soviet Union not from itself, but from the condescension of wiseacre scholars. I have to ask you who they are. Toward (laughs) the end of the 90s, however... I think I know who they are. <laughs> Toward the end of the 90s, however, these always problematic motives began to wane. A sign of maturity or emotional exhaustion, question mark, hard to say. More likely belated recognition that at long last, the game was the game up. Was up. Right. Reactions. Reaction. <laughs> uh, it's, a great, well, first, it's a great passage. I love oh, that passage. <laughs> First of all, as far as uh, naming names is concerned, uh, earlier drafts of this memoir did did more of that. Uh, uh, I was urged, I think, appropriately by several people uh, who read uh, these drafts uh, to uh, you know to not court uh, suits or whatever. <laughs> uh, so I so I've taken names out. Um, and you know that's fine. I, I I didn't want to write a memoir that had access to grind, um, and, and and I don't know if I've aired too much on the uh, to the other extent, but uh, um, yeah. So uh, I think that that passage uh, does encapsulate the the sense uh, that even if we sort of subconsciously knew we were we were uh, fighting a lost cause. Uh, namely to assert the importance of working people in history at a time when everything about that enterprise uh, was being questioned, uh, if not uh, dismissed. Um, you know, we nonetheless, we nonetheless 
thought we were fighting the the, the good fight. Um, can I turn now into the into the nineties? I think which is a really productive decade for you and and the two thousands. So you are um, through um, this period of what now is called DH or the digital humanities. One of the great pioneers in the field um, at understanding um, the the importance of getting things out online. Uh, you, you mentioned. Um, your colleague Jim in Minnesota, who was doing a lot of the coding um, and the production of things like CD-ROMs, Louise McReynolds did this for entertaining Tsarist Russia. So what was it, I, I think, that, that made you almost prescient about the power of the digital revolution and teaching history? Oh, I don't take credit for that uh, really at all. I mean, that that is that is Jim von Geldern's uh, signal contribution, I would say. Uh, my participation in uh, uh, 17 Moments in Soviet History uh, really is thanks to uh, Jim um, catching me at the right time which is to say uh, I had just become uh, chair of the history department at, at Michigan State University. And um, I needed something to, you know, keep me honest, uh, but not something that would require, uh, you know, significant uh, proportions of my time either on the road or uh, immersed in, 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 uh, in research. And 17 Moments um, satisfied uh, those conditions by um, requiring me to, to write a lot of uh, several paragraph length essays uh, about a wide variety of stuff um, in order to present a context for understanding or having access to the, these newly available resources. Uh, so Jim is, is the one who uh, really perceived that the time had come when it was possible to access things we couldn't have dreamed of, uh, of seeing and hearing, um, you know, as recently as a decade previous. And, uh, um, through, uh, almost daily emails and, um, uh, occasional, uh, meetings together, plus a few trips to Moscow where we, uh, identified, uh, film clips, uh, to use for the site. Um, you know, we came up with a prototype for, uh, what would become, uh, 17 moments. Yeah, and and I think you should give yourself more credit. <laughs> Honestly, uh, and this is not just to flatter because it, it that website I think really transformed the teaching of, of Soviet history and and gave a lot of us who are on social media and doing things now um, more ideas for shifting into transnational history and, and into global history. You know, I mean, you do mention um, at Michigan State the courses that you were teaching, like a global history of the automobile. Mm. Um, so it, it, it is, um, in fact, courses like that 
during the 90s and maybe into the into the 2000s, which um, lead us, those of us who are trained in that old area studies kind of way in, into more directions where we can be curious about a greater number of things. Um, so I, the, the question that I, I would ask you, since you are the author of Cars for Comrades um, mm-hmm. and a number of, of books about, uh, about uh, movement and mobility, so what, what was it that motivated you to write um, a book such as that? Um, you, you have a great story in, where you um, talk about uh, working with John Ackerman at Cornell and, and pitching it to him. and mm-hmm. He was very enthusiastic about the idea because it sounded so unusual um, how, how did you get to writing that and then researching that with all of your, um, archival knowledge and, and archival training? Hmm. So this, uh, this is, uh, roughly 2005 to 2004 or five, some, somewhere along those lines. Uh, no, maybe even a, f- a few years before that, when I, uh, suddenly noticed that, uh, Moscow uh, was filling up with cars um, every, every time I would go, which was at least once a year at the, at that point. Um, you know, that just seemed to be a proliferation of automobiles and very little in the way of infrastructure to to accommodate them. Uh, and um, so it, it aroused some curiosity about uh, the history of cars in the Soviet period. So that's number one. Number two, uh, I was at that point getting pretty desperate to escape from a sense of imprisonment in the Stalin era. <laughs> uh, and frankly, as I think I indicate in the book, a little uh, getting a little depressed about, you know, um, that's right. Yeah. The, the just the, you know, 20s, the 1920s and 30s and so forth. Yeah. yeah. So I, uh, I, I, I wanted something uh, to sink my teeth into that could sustain a narrative across the entirety of the Soviet period. Um, so that that's that's a, a second reason. A third reason is that I also uh, became, uh, I guess, at this point, a little tired of labor history as such, um, and uh, increasingly fascinated by. Um, uh, what to me was uh, a new field, which was uh, the history of material culture and, and consumption. Uh, and the late Soviet period uh, was uh, something that scholars were beginning to turn their attention, historians, I mean, to beginning to turn their attention to well, actually not just as the historians, but anthropologists as well. So uh, I think all of those things uh Came about, and 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 as I explain in the book, uh, uh, the the structure of the book came to me almost immediately. Uh, that is to say, that there would be several chapters uh, on uh, the production sites of of automobiles, the three major automobile factories throughout the Soviet Union in Nizhny Novgorod and Moscow and in uh, Toyati. Uh, and then there would be a kind of spinal chapter on Soviet roads, and uh, then several on um, the, uh, the acquisition and maintenance of cars uh, uh, 
organized uh, chronologically. Uh, and um, the research uh, was uh, to uh, immerse myself in everything I could imagine about cars. And I should add that I had very little training in auto mechanics or in industrial mechanics, right? <laughs> yeah, so looking after my own car, for example, uh, and not that much experience in uh, in with automobiles in the Soviet Union. That is, I I I, I took one or two road trips uh, in the course of well, actually not in the Soviet period, but well, in the very late Soviet period, right? Nineteen eighty nine, ninety ninety one. Um, but, um, uh, so I had to learn, you know, an entirely new vocabulary, uh, which in some cases was as much in English as <laughs> new to me in English as it was in Russian. Uh, and, uh, fortunately I had, I had some good guides along the way. Uh, I think I referred to at least, uh, Boris Shpotov in, in the case of, uh, an historian in, in Russia who has, uh, written extensively on, on Ford. And, um, and, uh, you know, I would visit car museums and, um, I immersed myself in Soviet films about cars, uh, thanks to, uh, a man named Leonia Weintraub, who took me to an amazing, uh, flea market in Moscow where every video uh, cassette under the sun was, was, uh, was being sold. Uh, and, um, you know, watching all of those films and identifying, uh, moments, uh, when cars were the main protagonists and, uh, doing all that. It was, it was, it was great fun. I, I, I dare say, as I think I do in the book, that I, I've never had as much fun doing research. And, and I, I like actually, how frank you are. I don't think a lot of scholars think of it this way, but you're very frank about the shift from a mid-career scholar to a late career scholar and, and how mm. to sort of um, maybe rejuvenate yourself and, and find topics that might be a little bit off the wall. This would be things that are, are now very much in the middle of the establishment, like sports and nuclear power and mm -hmm. cinema and, and, and migration, which you write about. Um, as part of the migration church, as, as you describe it in your last chapter. So let, let, let me turn to um, your predictions toward the end and, and the word that you, keeps coming back to you about, um, about capitalism and communism. I'll, I'll read a passage where it seems like you're very pessimistic about, um, let's say, the, the future of our, our, our research field uh, toward the end. Um, you write, what am I doing with my privilege? That is a painful question to address because the answer that screams in my head is not enough. I began this memoir with my teenaged existence defined by tennis and communism. I still play tennis after a fashion, but what about communism? I still see it much as Rosa Luxemburg did in 1915 as the only real alternative to the barbarism of capitalism. Barbarism, I hear my colleagues say, really? Yes, really. The relentless drive for profit is now endangering the world as never before, pitting humans against every other species on the planet, 
more starkly than at any time since the rise of capitalism. As for class against class, the old animus of Marxism, the pharaohs would blush at the inequality of wealth and power in contemporary capitalist societies, not least in the United States. In terms of shortened and immiserated lives, this too is barbaric, unquote. You still sound like a Marxist to me. Would you describe yourself that way? Absolutely. Uh, maybe even more so uh, uh, than uh, I used I used to uh, think of myself. Uh, part part of this has had to do with uh, the the luxury of of retirement, which uh, has included reacquainting myself with some of the classic texts, um, and that has been facilitated by a reading group uh, among young younger colleagues. Um, that I've been part of. Um, but also I think it, it, it's something that I, uh, share with some, uh, a significant proportion, I would say of much younger people, uh, at least in, in this country, uh, there is a substantial, uh, movement of young people, mostly associated with the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, but not exclusively. Um, you've seen undoubtedly the, the polls that show that most, uh, a majority of people under 35, I think it is, uh, have positive associations with socialism. I think all of this comes about because of what, you know, seems, seems so damned, uh, obvious and dangerous, uh, what's been going on in the United States in particular, but really to some extent, at least throughout the rest of the world, uh, with respect to climate change, with respect to growing uh, socioeconomic inequality. Um, so for for, the, for those reasons, now I, I, I want to add that uh, uh, only last night, uh, coincidentally, uh, I received an email from uh, a, a, a dear old friend. Uh, I refer to her in the memoir as the... Uh, the the fabulously beautiful uh, Mena from Portugal, whom I encountered in uh, uh, at Oxford, a fellow graduate student. Um, and I received an email from her last night after she had read uh, portions, at least, of the memoir. And she 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 cited this passage that you just quoted from to say, uh, "Really, Lewis? <laughs> yeah, you, you really think that capitalism is barbarism and not communism? Uh, would you prefer the United States? Uh, oh, sorry, would you prefer communist China to the United States?" <laughs> uh, and you know, I can I can push back on that. You know, to say as I think I do in a passage either just before or just after the one you read that. Uh, communism, you know, communism happened in certain places for certain reasons, um, and, and that um, you know, in the long run, we might think of as unfortunate. That is, it was ripe for communist revolution, but not for communism. Um, but uh, so uh, we we can we can debate, you know, these these questions uh, until the end of time, but. Time is getting scarce, uh, right. and uh, that's uh, that's the the point I, I want to underscore. 
So the, the final question I have for you is a terrible question after retirement, but it's our traditional question here on New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on right now? I find myself uh, without a significant project, uh, which is a, a very uncomfortable thing because I've always had had one throughout my professional career. Uh, I uh, am returning to a project that I discuss in the book that um, I put in abeyance um, about 20 years ago, and that's this uh, the construction of the Ferghana Canal in Uzbekistan, uh, a canal that was uh, built in the late 1930s, 1939, 1940, um, which uh, fascinated me for various reasons. I did integrate a bit of it here and there and some other things that I've done, but uh, I never have uh, published anything uh, focused on it. And uh, so I'm, I'm reacquainting myself with the materials that I gathered uh, for it, whether this is going to impel me to revisit Tashkent uh, uh, and Fergana, I, I, I doubt. But we'll, we'll see what, what comes of that. Otherwise, right. I am right. reviewing uh, books, I'm, uh, uh, for, as well as for uh, journals like the Times Literary Supplement. Um, I'm, re- I'm reading and evaluating manuscripts that uh, that uh, book publishers uh, have received. Um, I am the editor in chief of a journal uh, called Region, uh, which is uh, published uh, or uh, uh, yeah published uh, in uh, South in South Korea, um, and is devoted to the regions of the former Soviet bloc. Uh, and is uh, really edited by a former student of mine. Uh, and finally, um, uh, I am working for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Well, I, ima- I, I had imagined that um, you would have you would be working on a lot of different things at once because uh, that that um, is one of my takeaways from this memoir that the energy that you have and and the intellectual curiosity um, in in so many different directions, but um, also leading to an an incredible amount of of productivity. So I want to thank Louis Siegelbaum for being on our new books in Russian and Eurasian studies podcast, a channel on the new books in history network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. And I want to thank you, Lewis, for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen.